0: Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate.
1: Good evening everyone. I'm Matthew Taylor, I'm Chief Executive <laughs> of the RSA. I'm delighted to welcome you all here tonight for the 2017 Albert Medal event. Uh, before we begin, could I ask you to turn your phone to silent? Uh, we're filming this evening and streaming live over the web, so welcome to those of you joining us <laughs> online. Um, and a reminder that the hashtag, if you want to join in the conversation online, is RSA Murray. Um, now, housekeeping notice is over. It's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's special event. The RSA has awarded the Albert Medal for Innovation in the Fields of Creativity and Social Improvement since 1864. Recent past recipients include healthcare innovator Jost Block and human rights campaigner Peter Tatchell. The Albert Medal is now recognized as a means of identifying and rewarding those at the forefront of practical social innovation, those often unsung heroes who are driven by a desire to make the world a better place. We're delighted to partner with Nesta on this year's honor, and we've made the decision to award the Albert Medal posthumously to the late industrial and environmental economist Robin Murray. We're delighted to welcome Robin's wife, Frances, to accept the award this evening on his behalf, and I'd like also to extend a warm welcome to members of Robin's family joining us this evening. Robin Murray was a visionary social and economic thinker whose life's work was guided by a profound commitment to mutuality and cooperation. He has been called the social innovators, social innovator. Robin was active and influential across several fields from cooperatives to energy system innovation. His expertise, practical intelligence, nuanced and humane approach was sought by many organizations over his career. Robin's writing on social, technological, and institutional innovation has had extensive reach and impact. In 2010, he co-authored the seminal Open Book of Social Innovation, and his papers continue to inspire a wide range of policy debate and development, including RSA's own research around the social economy. We'll be hearing this evening from three champions of innovation and change, all of whom had a close association with Robin's work. Jeff Mulgan, Nesta's chief executive, social entrepreneur, Hilary Cottom, and Ed Mayo, Secretary-General of Cooperatives UK. But first of all, I'd like to invite Francis to join me on stage. It gives me great pleasure to present you, Francis Murray, with the 2017 Albert Medal in recognition of Robin's pioneering career in social innovation. And we're delighted to have this opportunity to reflect on and celebrate the practical impact and legacy of his work.
2: This is a very special moment for me and for all of Robin's family, those who are here and those who can't be here today. I do honestly think that Robin would have been truly amazed today and by this award and shocked even because <laughs> although he was fiercely competitive in sport, in his academic and working life, what mattered most to him was working with others collectively. With many of you who are here and many who are far away... Um, all over the world scattered. And I can hear him say today, actually insist probably, that it is not him alone to be honoured tonight, and that he'd like it shared, this lovely medal, shared with those with whom he has taught and from whom he's learnt, organised with, written with, shared thoughts and ideas with. And I'd like to thank all of them for him tonight. And all of us in the family will cherish this wonderful medal and the honouring and what it stands for. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Francis. Jeff.
3: Well, thank you all. This medal is definitely much better than an Oscar, which is much in the news today, and uh, and so richly deserved. I'm one of the very lucky ones, as I guess quite a few of you were. My life was pretty deeply touched by uh, Robin in in all sorts of ways. And all of us know people who are flat. Um, Robin, I think, was like yeast. He was one of those people who makes things rise up and almost couldn't help but have that effect on the things around him, enlivening in every sense of the word. He had certainly presence, often a chuckle on his lips, a twinkle in his eyes, and he exuded joy in life, and I think in other people's voices and lives. Uh, Like Yeast, he was a bit invisible. He's not a household name, um, but his work has actually influenced in pretty profound ways all sorts of aspects of how we, how we work, how we eat, how we shop, how we create, how we handle, the waste we produce, all sorts of things. Um, but always, as, as Francis said, done with others. Um, Matthew, I think you once said that it's not um, hope that breeds action, but actually action which feeds hope. And Robin was a really good example of that, always in his life, diving into action, and through that action generating confidence and optimism about how the world could be changed. And I'm very grateful for you for giving this medal, hosting this event. I knew Robin first as a, as a boss in the very distant days of the GLC. There's probably a few people in this room old enough to remember the GLC. Uh, there are quite a few who may not. Um, then as a collaborator on many projects from reimagining tax systems to recycling, teaching municipal officials, mapping social innovation, and I I benefited from having him as as a mentor, a a coach, and from that contagious optimism. A few people in this room worked at the Young Foundation where, and Francis you may not really be aware of this, but he would often kind of come and just sit as a sort of in-house therapist, and people would just walk by and spend 10 minutes or half an hour talking to him, and always come away So energised, cobwebs, cleared away, a stronger sense of the way ahead, confidence that obstacles could be overcome. It was an incredibly generous uh, uh, sort of gift he gave again and again uh, and and had a huge indirect uh, influence. What I want to talk about briefly today is his method and why it matters and why I think his work is so worthy of this medal um, last night, um, we were in, in Italy launching Nesta Italia, a sort of branch of ours, which had gathered together a whole bunch of, um, of social innovators, uh, people from maker spaces, healthcare co-ops, and so on. And it was re- I was reflecting this morning, all of them were actually Murrayites, nearly all of them working in systems which are not Murrayite yet. <laughs> and he, he would have been completely at home Uh, in in that world, that world which in some ways has yet not quite taken over the systems around it, um, but hopefully will one day. When I first worked for him at the GLC, he periodically wrote detailed critiques, deconstructing the things I was working on and then reconstructing them in a far better way. They were quite remarkable documents, quite involved, always educating, even in the midst of local government, and the first time he took me through one of those lists was, I think, the first time I ever heard the word 17thly. <laughs> Some of you who knew Robin will recognize this. Not a word you hear uh, often. So, sadly, I've only got five points to make um, this evening. Um, but uh, maybe we can get to 17 by the end of the evening. So, these are about his method. And I think bits of the method which, say, for all those innovators in Italy, all around the world, completely understand. The first is about Diving. He believed, I think, that you should always dive deep into detail, that to really change any system you had to observe, you had to talk, you had to listen, you had to map, you had to then reconstruct how things worked and do that directly. And that could be energy in self-built homes, recycling plastics, distribution of cocoa beans, but always following Bertolt Brecht's maxim that truth is in the concrete uh, and one of my fond memories of, of many of him is walking the streets of Huddersfield 20 years ago, mapping waste flows, the movements of glass and paper and plastics, probably the least glamorous thing you could ever do, uh, but, but with him, always fascinating, because you were diving into the, the truth, the reality uh, of a system. It's an approach almost opposite to most of the economics profession, who deduce who makes sense of the world from an armchair and always from secondary sources. But it's a much healthier approach because it means being energised by what you find and means being constantly surprised by the peculiarities of the world. And I think that's one of the great things of being with Robin is you shared with him the constant surprise of diving into detail. Second, he liked to question. He investigated things through interrogation, learning by asking questions, as if decoding a fascinating puzzle. And feeding into that curiosity, we all hopefully have, we certainly do as children, it's sometimes knocked out of us rather successfully, but that excitement when you feel you're breaking a code, you're getting to some hidden uh, insight into how things work. And again, I think that's one of the reasons he was such fun to work with. The projects were never quite linear. They always had rather rambling detours and hikes and to horrendously mix metaphors, they were you felt you were sort of peeling onions, cracking nuts, unravelling knots all at the same time. And I'm sure that ability always to ask questions was one of the reasons he was such an incredibly good educator, both in his formal roles as a professor, but probably in literally everything he did, he was always eliciting insight through asking questions. Third, everything he did was infused with values and an ability to see in everything not just what it is, but also what it could be, the untapped potential that's waiting to be emancipated, set free, a sort of fusing of know, Quakerism, Marxism, Liberalism, a whole series of currents that have come together in his approach. And it was always alive. I remember once for a joke in Beijing with Rushanar Ali, we took him to a Maoist music hall, because he once had toyed with Maoism. And there, every night, they played the old songs and waved the old flags. It was a weird sort of ossification of an ideology. But in a way, it revealed just how different that was from what he did, which was completely alive. And the next morning, he was teaching Beijing municipal officials about the circular economy. Absolutely a living approach to the world, not one where the values had become uh, uh, concretized. And I think that confidence in potential, that there's always an untapped potential in in, in everyone, in every every system, meant that Robin always believed people could be competent interpreters and shapers of their world and more competent than the systems they were in would ever believe. Uh, And that applied to um, community newspapers and magazines in Brighton, to his approach to workplaces. And I think that seeking out of latent possibility again, is a source of energy. It's a kind of renewable energy, which means you never really sort of get, you never become cynical. You never uh, uh, sort of dry up in terms of ideas. Fourth, he was much less interested in distribution than in production. And this was in contrast to much of the left, who often essentially wanted to leave to capitalism, the job of, of making things, and then the job of politics or socialism was to redistribute the wealth and the income. He thought that was not a very sensible approach and instead wanted to understand making in all its senses, to go upstream rather than downstream. Uh, And that's what drove the interest in the economic lessons to be learned from Emilio Romana or Mondragon, the ideas of Deming and Toyota Uh, And all those different ways of thinking about an economy which tapped the gold in people's minds, uh, which was able to be liberating of potential in production, not just in distribution. And I think he hoped for an economy which was democratic in spirit in its making of things, not just in how welfare states and others then distributed the goods. I think that approach is probably needed even more now than in the past. At a time when, as the RSA often documents, you know the, the vanguards of the economy have moved even further away from the rest. We have stagnant pay and productivity. Democracy has made far less inroads into the world of work than I think people might have hoped 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago. Most people do not work in anything remotely resemble uh, a democracy. And when more than ever, we need organizing models for everything from taxi services to care that empower rather than enslave, something, of course, Matthew has been rather involved in. Um, So I think there's a huge amount of unfinished business in that job of rethinking the production side of the economy. And fifth and finally, he believed it wasn't enough to do projects, interesting pilots. He thought you should always look at the whole and uh, think through the meaning and implications of everything you did in terms of a larger project. And this linking of the micro and the macro was, I think, always fertile. The macro could be reimagined by drawing on the lessons of millions of small experiments, in a way, that's part of what the post-Fordism argument was, and later, the the open book of social innovation, which, which Matthew mentioned. But equally, the micro, the small project, could be, illuminated and energised by being connected to the electricity of bigger, grander goals. I think that was why he so appreciated, amongst others, the work of Carlota Perez, who's a a rare example of political economy in its grandest sense, uh, explaining the financial crisis and its aftermath in terms of a much bigger story of how the tectonic plates of economies have shifted and created new needs and new possibilities for technological, social, economic innovation. It's why in everything from his work at the GLC to co-ops, he sought in everything ways to prefigure, that was the, the, the word used, to see what in the present could point to a better future at the level of a whole system, whether that's a completely refashioned world trading system, a city uh, not contribute, contributing carbon to climate change, a circular economy. And I suspect it's why... He, very unfashionably, was so keen on local government, which sort of straddled the micro and the macro. And I think probably everyone who worked with Robin felt that constant iteration between the small and the big, the micro and the macro, seeing the world in a grain of sand, but also seeing a possible world in the little seeds here in the present. And out of all these methods, diving, questioning, liberating potential, remaking production, using the small to illuminate and transform the big. He did influence how we buy, how we eat, how we work, how we create. So why spell these all out? Well, partly to celebrate him, to celebrate him receiving this medal. And I think getting credit, which he probably deserved a very long time ago, um, but probably didn't quite get because he spent his time changing the world, not writing books or articles, the things most economists did, but also because I think everything in his method is what we need now. At a time of nostalgia or the sense of blocked progress, we need that infectious optimism, that sense of latent potential. At a time when a lot of politics is quite comfortable with very vague slogans, We need that attention to the real, the concrete, the willingness to dive into things as they are. And at a time of widespread fatalism, we need that confidence the world is waiting to be made and remade right here, right now, that spirit which says that if something is wrong, then something must be done, and we might as well be the ones to do it. One of the great pleasures visiting... Robin and Francis was when a conversation would be fueled by something they had just cooked, a cake, some bread, some scones fresh from the oven, and that may be why I associate Robin with yeast. Some people are flat. Robin made things rise. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Jeff. Now we're going to hear briefly from Hillary uh, and Ed. I should say that we've asked them to keep their comments not shorter. They could have spoken, I'm sure, as uh, as much detail as, as Jeff has, but um, they're going to respond briefly so that we can hear from the floor because I'm sure there's a lot of people in the room who want to share uh, their ex- memories of Robin and a sense of the insights and contribution he made. So, Hillary, to you
4: first. Um, I will just stand up if that's okay. Um, uh, just thank you. I mean, Jeff, that was a wonderful. Uh, it was wonderful, and I want to pick up on, on, on some of those themes. Um, Robin was my teacher, and Robin was, as Jeff has mentioned, a truly exceptional and gifted teacher. And I was lucky enough to arrive at the Institute of Development Studies in Sussex when Robin was still on the faculty and teaching in the early 1990s and Robin ran a a reading group around Capital, which you heard about the very minute you arrived, and was completely packed out. You had to find a space on the floor, on the windowsill, on a cupboard, anywhere you could get to hear this electrifying interrogation of Volume 1. And you know, with Robin, it was balletic, it was kind of... you know, And it was so physical and intellectual, and I can still play that class in my mind and draw on it for inspiration. And I woke up intellectually when I met Robin, and I think that so many of us did. And at Sussex, Robin taught this course on public administration. I've got the pamphlet here in 1992, that was published in 1992. And it's it's one of many pamphlets that Robin was part of, but this is just typical of Robin's work, because it was wide-ranging. It drew on practice from the UK, Korea, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, much of which Robin had been engaged with personally. And it was intellectually brilliant and far ahead of its time. 25 years ago, before most of us had an email address, Robin is writing in this pamphlet about the potential of open systems and the network. And I've been using this pamphlet for a book that I'm writing at the moment, because I think it's still one of the best expositions of radical thinking about public administration. And I told Robin last year that I was using one particular article in this pamphlet, and he told me how long it taken him to edit this article and make it possible and i think that was just so robin because really it was all about making other people's work shine And on our course, we moved into a house. This is, as you say, very typical of Robin's method. And Robin rented this house in Harlow when we divided ourselves into teams and we started to work on the future of Harlow's services. And it was full on, 24 hours a day, focused and crowded chaos. And it was a small house with three rooms, three bedrooms. And one of the bedrooms was allocated to Robin and the male students on our course. But they decided that Robin snored, and so they moved Robin into the kitchen. And, you know, he must have been, we were living in this house, he must have been incredibly uncomfortable and forgone all his sleep. But, of course, being Robin, he never complained, he never pulled rank, suggesting that he was, after all, our tutor and that perhaps he deserved a bed. And the team I was working on, we did a waste round and we were up at dawn working on the trucks collecting rubbish to get this granular understanding, exactly the method um, that Jeff is talking about, of how the service worked. And this was Robin's teaching. He challenged us theoretically, he pushed our practical work until it resembled something that might be of use to Harlow, because, Jeff, I first met you. Do you remember when you were on the assessment team and you had to kind of give a critique to our early ideas? And then he challenged the system of learning, and he wanted us to submit work which combined practical work, this actual concrete work, with the theory we've been studying. And he wanted us to submit it as groups. And both of, all of this was totally antithetical at the time to Sussex's way of grading students. And looking back, I realised that Robin must have really suffered fighting this corner, but he won. And I know that for each and every one of us on that course, our lives were changed. They changed shape, and we knew that we had to combine practice with theoretical rigor if we were to make change in the world. And I think this is such an important part of Robin's legacy, really. It is distributed within us, people who have worked with him and who have been taught by him. We, in a way, are the legacy in the world. And Robin was generosity personified. He would always assume that you knew so much more than you actually did. And then with his gentle questioning, he would make you raise your game. Later, Robin became my collaborator. Although, of course, to me, he was always my teacher. And uh, I worked at the Design Council, and Robin um, decided he would be my maternity cover. And I mention this because of Robin's modesty. I don't know any other teacher that would think, oh, well, this was my pupil, and maybe I could cover her maternity leave. But what Robin saw was that there was this incredible team and an opportunity to make practical change. And I think this is the really important thing about Robin. You can't separate Robin the man from Robin the intellectual, the teacher, and the entrepreneur who changed so many lives. Robin was democratic to his very marrow, and this was one of the reasons that I loved Robin. And this was also how he made change. I don't know how many of you here have ever made a train journey with Robin, but I asked Robin if he would come with me to look at our ageing service, Circle, in Rochdale. And Robin got on the train, and he shook the hands of everybody sitting around us before he sat down. And of course, most people were sort of charmed, but also slightly disconcerted by this. But by the time we got to Rochdale, Robin had not only made an ally of a senior health leader who happened to be in the carriage and would help us later, but just as Jeff had said, he'd completely dissected in a myriad ways what we were doing and put it back together as something kind of much better and much more radical. And then later that day, we got stuck in a lift at Rochdale Borough Housing, and Rochdale Borough—they were our wonderful partners on Rochdale Circle. And I felt panic, and I wanted to get out of this lift. But of course, for Robin, it was marvellous. He spent the time it took to rescue us, persuading all these leaders in the lift of what we should do, and he worked his (laughs) magic on all these ideas and opened everybody to the next (laughs) phase of work. Robin was a visionary thinker and practitioner, and he worked across sectors and across continents, changing lives and pushing for possibilities before others had really thought of them. And most recently, Robin had been writing, working with Ed, about economies of cooperation, about how we can grow the future through relationships and collaboration with those who share our values and our principles. Economies of cooperation are the very opposite of economies of scale, where the purpose is to grow the infrastructure and the organisation regardless of the social value. And this idea is just one of the very many inspiring legacies that Robin has left us. And I think it's important because, again, it does remind us that Robin's ideas and his teaching are alive in many of us, and we can take this work forward. So finally, I just want to say that I think it's particularly appropriate, Francis, that you have accepted the medal on Robin's behalf. Because you know Robin, Robin's family uh, was the root of his creativity. His brothers, Sandy and Hubert, Beth, Mika, Joe, and a new member of your family, I think, Isabella. Your warmth, your incredible gifts as an artist, Francis. This gave Robin his creativity as well, and it inspired him. And he lived the ideals he promoted at work and at home. And it's why I admired him so deeply. And I really think that there cannot be a more appropriate recipient of the Albert Medal.
5: I agree with that. I think that this medal honors Robin, but it also honors the giver. I think it honors the RSA with that association. Um, there are many people in the audience who will have known of Robin, who will have had images and pictures of him through their minds, as, as, as Jeff and Hillary spoke so eloquently and accurately of him. But for those who haven't, um, I've selected a short clip from colleagues in South Korea. Uh, from a visit that they made to um, look at cooperative schools here in the UK. And it's a very nice clip of Robin. and uh, Aaron, I wonder whether you could bring that up.
0: What the modern uh,
3: post-Darwinians are saying is actually there are two types of competition going on. One is an individual competition. The other is cooperation between systems, collective competition. Societies uh, or organizations which privilege private old Darwinian models of competition
0: are less effective as systems and therefore they lose out to systems that can cooperate. This is very profound.
3: Because what it puts on the table, it's not about cooperation taking over from competition. It is about uh, over what space you cooperate and with whom you are competing.
5: Want to uh, add to the uh, award that the RSA has made by uh, giving a tribute just in the form of five quotations which, I hope may bring some of that gentle smile that many of you will have known or you will have seen uh, to mind. And the first quotation is from Professor Ian McPherson, Canadian professor. And he talked of values and he says that one can never expect to achieve perfection. The ideal will always be beyond one's grasp. And that is partly what creates that special kind of entrepreneurship that one can identify with cooperatives. In 1985, uh, Robin, with Michael Barrett Brown, Pauline Tiffin, I guess, and, and others, uh, founded uh, TWIN. TWIN was rooted very much in the values of democracy and labour, and the labour movement, uh, kind of more widely. And for all its success, TWIN also became an enduring teaser, one of those puzzles, Jeff, that you talked about. How do you organise if your business is social change? Quote two Stephen Yeo commented that Robin's own achievements were always drowned by his enthusiasm for what his friends and comrades had done. And you had a good go at that, Francis, in your kind of response to Matthew's kind of award this evening. And thank you for that. So alongside a host of quite distinguished affiliations, uh, the LSE, the Young Foundation, um, Robin was an associate of Cooperatives UK from 2010. One of the things he pointed me to was the Greater London Enterprise Board Industrial Strategy, saved by Robin and uh, Michael. Uh, as he told me the story. I, I don't know whether you could confirm, Francis, but uh, he told me that they were stacked up like bricks keeping out the cold in the cottage in, in Cumbria. But it was learning from uh, some of that. And I think he'd have been pleased that one of the recommendations he made in the work that we did him for him, the idea of a cooperative university, is actually moving forward uh, with an event in the next uh, kind of fortnight in Manchester to bring that uh, about. My third quote uh, is from another friend of Robin's, Hilary Wainwright. And Hilary said that Robin exuded vigour and hope and he infected those around him with his mood. And again, you've heard of that from both what Jeff and Hilary have said. And his kind of infection was like a smile spreading. Um, He was an organiser. Um, he was modest enough to be a, a joiner, whether in his, the local co-op, Hackney, Cumbria, uh, kind of also the, the, the cooperative there, something of, of beauty. And we're living so much in an age of, of, of I, where individual action and social entrepreneurs are lauded as the way to make change. Um, not so for Robin... He always sought out the we. And his ideas, I think, as Jeff, you were kind of saying, were both hands-on and bird's eye uh, as well. And in one of our last exchanges, he categorically rejected the idea that this kind of action, this kind of politics, was in some way folk politics. Um, And I'll quote what he said, because this is just from an email, and it... There a live debate still. There may be some who remain happy to remain at the micro level, which is a proud anarchist tradition, but most gain their macro picture from their experience of their particular grains of sand and are inspired by it. There's a confidence that others are doing it and their practice together supports the general case for new policy in the battle against the old order who will always argue that new policies are impractical or their conventional ways are the only way. Once you leave that root in practice, you are in the world of unrooted intellect. Again echoes. My fourth quote is from the 19th century cooperative champion and thinker George Jacob Holyoke. remembering that the, first, the very first cooperative congress took place in this room. And we'd probably like to bring it back one day in partnership. That was a request for a cheaper reasonable. rate, exactly. <laughs> Holyoke cast back to an older tradition still, an, an Owenite tradition that I think Robin would have been happy to locate himself in, as I think probably Hilary and, uh, and Jeff uh, to you know, yourself, Matthew too. George Jacob Holyoke said, knowledge is greater, life is longer, health is surer, disease is limited, towns are sweeter, hours of labour are shorter, men and women are stronger and fairer. Cooperation carries wholesome food and increased income into a million homes where they were unknown before and has brought us nearer and nearer to that state of society which Robert Owen strove to create in which it shall be impossible for men and women to be depraved or to be poor a visionary statement. And my fifth quote, for Robin would always look forward, of course, is from Robin himself. The information economy is growing with the speed and diversity of a tropical forest. It is informal and astonishingly inventive. It shares many of the same values and practices of formal cooperatives and opens up numerous possibilities for a meshing between them. William Morris's News From Nowhere depicted a world based on mutualism that for more than a century was seen as utopian. But in the last decade, it has emerged as a reality, and not on the banks of the Thames, but in the world of the web. So here on the banks of the Thames, we can celebrate Robin's insight and Robin's gift of creating narratives that can fast forward social change.
1: So I'm really keen to uh, open up the, the conversation in the room. We've only got till seven o'clock, unfortunately. But so I'm only going to ask one question. Um, uh, so much that we've heard is is so positive, um, as it should be to celebrate Robin's life. But I'm interested in what you think Robin would say and what you would say to somebody who expressed pessimism about where we are. You know, it is. It's lazy to caricature the government and the opposition, but it's not going to stop me doing it. Um, uh, I heard today uh, of a department in Whitehall in the context of terrible austerity that has a big fund for innovation and doesn't know how to spend it. Right? Uh, We have an opposition which isn't really interested in kind of experimental incremental change, but in big central government shifts. You know, whether or not one agrees or doesn't agree, that's the kind of focus of it. The network society seems to have turned into kind of the monopoly society. <laughs> um, what, where would one find hope here, and how would you, or how do you think Robin would say that we should understand this moment? Is it a, is it a cycle, or is it a trend, and how do we get out of it? Let's go in reverse order, Ed. Do you want to...
5: Um... Well, I'd be very interested to in see what Hilary and, and, and um, you know, Jeff, you say as, you know, as, as well. But, uh, you know, I'm quite lucky because, you know, my job, my job, my day job is a practitioner day job. You know, I work with cooperatives, large and small, up and down the country. So, you know, I just have hope oozing out of every pore because I visit co-ops that are doing the kinds of amazing things that Robin would have talked about. Uh, I visit the um, Brighton and Hove Energy Services Cooperative um, which is a passionate group of people that are trying to crack something that Robin was working on and working on. There's lots of things that Robin didn't fully crack by the, by the time that he finished. Uh, you know, Energy, the demand side of energy was, you know, was one, social care was another, you know, brilliant on, on, on banking, and actually some of the RSA's own work on that is very much in that tradition. And if they can develop a business model to crack... Uh, energy efficiency. Then it could be taken out to every home around the um, you know the, the country. Um, I'm you know with uh, uh, Outlandish. Tom, you probably know Outlandish, uh, a um, you know a fast-growing worker co-op in the technology field. I think they're working with Nestor as well, uh, opening a new space for kind of digital enterprise, and and they're part of a network that is sharing business amongst cooperative technologists. Um, they've created a, a secondary network, co-tech. They have a vision of 30,000 people working in democratic worker co-ops in the technology space. So I guess when you're working with people like that, the risk is that you are left with just the emotions of hope, the emotions of enthusiasm. Um, and, and probably we need just to be knocked over the head with the realities of, of, of Brexit and how tough these things are. Uh, but for myself, I think the energy comes from, the inspiration comes from the practice, the people that are, are, are doing those things, the growth of the Buen Vivir movement, you know, kind of worldwide, all of these signs that social movements are the route to social change rather than policy and governmental action. And ultimately, it's social movements that create... Uh, and recreate values They institutionalise, articulate and institutionalise values that take root in society and economies over time.
4: Well, I think one of the things is that you never knew what Robin was going to say. I mean, I had to always, you know, that's what was so brilliant. It was, you know, it was always so interesting. You couldn't predict it and you had to find out, you know, when Corbyn first was leader, I had to kind of call Robin and say, Robin, what do you think? Um, and, um, and so that's very important that, that we don't know. Um, I think that uh, I think you know one of the really important things is something that both Jeff and Ed have talked about, which is the way that Robin always found energy through practice, and so he would come up with his response to your question would be talking about practical examples and talking about um, different practical things, and I think that would be really important, and as Jeff said, he would then brush the cobwebs off everybody else, and we would all feel slightly differently about it. but um, the, one of the um, last things that I did with Robin was I think was last summer in Dartington and um, I asked Robin that same question because it is quite hard actually not to be and we were talking with another colleague of ours um, Julie Richardson who was at at Sussex and is also a radical very um, interesting economist And they were talking together about the idea of mycelium. I don't know if everybody's familiar with this, but it's, you know, the the roots of mushrooms, which the mushroom comes up and the mushroom dies, but the root gets stronger and stronger and spreads invisibly over thousands of miles. And I think partly because Robin always had this historical sweep, he was very conscious of the fact that, yes, OK, it might look in this very small, tiny part of the historical wave, things might look grim now, but underneath... Just as you've been saying, really, Ed, what is happening is incredibly vital, strengthening, and things are really changing. Things are really changing.
3: Well, one, one negative and one positive uh, comment. I think someone like Robin, who I didn't know your quote on the macro and the micro, but who iterated between them, Uh, often had most impact when he could work with uh, someone who ran part of the state. So Michael Ward, Nicky Gavron in London, or the state of Ontario in Canada, or or Seychelles. And I think he was unlucky. He was very unlucky to be working in a period when there were so few political leaders who had the clue to understand how much they needed (laughs) his sort of ideas. And so I think we as a society got far less value out of Robin because of that. And there's all sorts of reasons for that. Um, which we don't need to go into. The, the more positive side, as a version of this, echoes what Hillary said. He, he was very um, taken by Carlotta Perez and others, Chris Freeman and others, who, who had a, a sense of really the long waves of economic change. And Carlotta's analysis of the 2007-8 financial crisis, which showed that this was a sort of epiphenomena of deeper changes in the economy, which probably for quite a long period would make things appear to be worse, as indeed they were after the, the great crash in 1929 and the 30s. Because at that point, the old structures are not yet weak enough to die, and the new ones are not yet strong enough to take over. So you go through these long periods of stasis, of propping up the old economic structures, political structures, while the seeds are beginning to grow and gain confidence, but it's only in the next phase that they become mainstream, as in various ways did happen in the 1940s and 50s. And that may or may not be true, (laughs) but I think that kind of view of the relationship between the big historical sweep of things and our role in it is really quite important, especially in often rather dark and depressing times. Great.
1: Let's op- open it up to comments from, uh, from you. There, We've got roving microphones. If you could tell us your name when you speak, that would be great. I can't believe I can't see any iron. Very good. I knew I would just... <laughs>
6: Uh, good evening. Um, my name is Mark Dorfman. I'm a town planner um, and uh, a fellow of the RSA. Um, just, just to respond to um, Matthew's concern, I've just finished reading um, a new George Monbiot book and also um, sort of out, out of the Wreckage, and also a book by Kate Rayworth, the Donut. Um, Economics, And it seems to me that those two together um, say three things about going forward, which takes on the work of all four of you sitting in front of us. First, first of all, is uh, it's about the ownership of commons. Um, sm- local people finding ways to have power and to own, but not... Um, and share common spaces and common means of production and services. At, do that through fellowships rather than memberships. And then the, the big thing is organising of big data and the story of how Bernie Saunders almost <laughs> was, was the uh, um, President of the United States. Um, and it seems to me that the, the first two are something about what social entrepreneurs hold deeply but the third is about how to manage and manipulate the uh, social network and the information economy. And the story about how Bernie Saunders did so well in the American election is quite incredible as a technique. Um, and I'm just wondering if uh, I've, I've got my understanding right or whether any of those, those three things spark um, an avenue that, that the four you think is a positive way forward
1: okay let's um take comment there
7: hello i'm alan suckett i worked alongside um, robin in the 70s in brighton and in the 80s a bit in london and uh, i just wanted to share an anecdote which confirmed what you were saying I was standing in a food queue at a party in 1974 at a mutual friend's house and I'd spent my life till then absolutely convinced that what we had to do was have high levels of redistributive taxation and that would be a good thing and he said taxation's a disaster Alan he said I said what do you mean he said taxation is an act of love between um, those of us with spare resources and the common good, and we bureaucratize it in the kind of way that make people loathe it, and so we take away the act of commonality and cooperation that we have together. And It just struck me that that's completely in the spirit of what you'd said, and I thought I'd like to share it.
1: Very good. Um, who else wants to make a comment? I'm sure other people do want to... Uh, yeah, here, Ah. There's a recognisable
0: face. Ch- <coughs> Charlie Ledbeater. Uh I met Robin at a Marxism Today away weekend in a dusty, aristocratic, former aristocratic mansion. And he had just, or he was just writing an article called Bennett on Britain, which was about post-Fordism. And I'd just written a piece about why the left should be interested in individuality rather than individualism Uh, and Robin had a gift which all of you have talked about but he had a a sort of gift to be able to change the way that you saw your life and your work and he said two things to me uh, in different occasions one at that event the first was I was then in my 20s and I was sort of in a series of completely disastrous relationships Um, and so I was quite happy to go on an away weekend with Marxism today because you know nothing was really working for me personally and Robin said to me of course these weekends would be so much better if my wife was here. And I suddenly thought, oh, that is what it must be like then. If you actually fall in love, you must actually want your wife to be there on these weekends. Um, And so unwittingly, he kind of explained and set a standard for me, which was about how you should live. And the thing that you felt about Robin all the time was that sort of generosity that came from Robin came, as Hilary said, from that relationship. But then... Uh, Later, in the uh, 90s, Robin Francis and uh, us, we lived very close to one another in Hackney. And so I had the opportunity occasionally to go for a cup of tea with Robin, which was very special. And so, very keenly, uh, just after the Labour government was elected, I went round and said, he said, what are you working on? I said, I'm working on all of this stuff about how we can deliver public services more efficiently. And he said... I mean, he kind of smiled, he paused, he was very gentle, he was aware that he was about to say something that was potentially explosive. And he said, you know, Charlie, there are some problems to which you can deliver solutions, and there are some problems that you need to create solutions for in the process of solving them. And they're quite different approaches. And so what he did with me then, (coughs) in effect, was he sort of came over to me, he kind of picked me up, and levitated me, sort of turned me upside down and around and then gently placed me back down where I was sitting, having completely revolutionized the way that I saw the world. Because having thought that actually the reform of public services was all about how you deliver things, I came to see that actually it was about how you create things, health, education, learning, safety, whatever it was. And he had this remarkable ability to go from the small to the big and to go from the critical to the generous, which was, I think, changed lots of people's lives in ways that he never really understood uh, the power of that generosity.
1: So before I bring the panel in for a final comment, and and then there's a chance to go downstairs and and have a drink and carry on chatting. Uh, Yes, I know if I said final, people would suddenly put their hands up, it always, always works.
3: Uh, just to—I uh, worked with uh, Robin at the GLC, and I just want to recall a, a, a part of him that was a street-fighting politician. Uh, we've talked a lot about his intellectual generosity and width. When we went into the GLC, it was a war, Uh, and I can remember one of the Director Generals coming up to me, pinning me against the wall, and saying, we will bury you. And I'm delighted to say Robin led a team in which we buried them, and he fought at all levels of politics, bureaucratic and political. So I don't want to let that side of uh, his his reality, the toughness of him, uh, go by without remark.
1: So that prompts me just for a final thought from you, from you all, before we, we finish, which is that this combination of being able to feel incredibly passionate, but yet not be predictable, yet say the counter, I mean that feels. I, I know I'm the, the voice of gloom tonight, I know, but that feels like something we've lost as well—the capacity to be passionate, but yet not to be kind of in a particular camp, in a position which, had, is that something that we can regain? Where do we look for, I mean I, you know, I found that a bit when I did the employment review, is that I, I felt this overwhelming pressure to be one thing or the other and to try to stay in a position where you said that I care about this issue but actually I'm, I'm not going to entirely agree with anybody that's, that's an important kind of uh, form of thinking isn't it to social, to social innovation, that kind of
3: combination. Jeff. Um, I don't have an answer to that question, but just following what, what Nick said, I think there, there was in Robin a really good example of something you probably see in anyone who really makes change, which is a strange mix of arrogance and humility. You have to be very humble to listen to the world, to share, to cooperate, but you actually need a certain sort of confidence and sometimes arrogance which his bearing, I mean, he, he was a, you know, had a, a great sort of physical uh, stature, he'd been a fantastic actor, you know, um, meant he wasn't frightened by anyone. Um, and most of us are frightened, you know. He stood up in planning inquiries or in all sorts of settings and was very happy, as you say, to, to fight and argue his case. And the thing which is going through my mind, which I don't really have an answer to, is all of you, in a way, have described... So learning processes, how he was able to make people more than they would have been otherwise through a combination of gifts of interrogation, levitation, all sorts of things. Where are our institutions doing that, nurturing the people we need for the next 10 or 20 years? Our universities are certainly not doing it. Almost none of the things we've described are standard practice in, for the uh, you know, 50% of each age cohort going in universities. Maybe your co-op one will be that. But I think that's the question we should sort of take out of this conversation and Robin's life, is really not, not how do we clone him, <laughs> but how do we ensure we are populating our society with tens, hundreds of thousands of people who have that confidence and humility, mixed in that strange this,
1: formula this is completely unfair uh but actually it seems to me as jeff just said this this is the entirely appropriate way to end this is with a future research agenda that is starting to take shape which is around you know what are the kinds of institutions that, that we need what do you think is the question that we should be looking at that most honors robin's contribution you're you're thinking about the future of the welfare state you're returning to these ideas i guess
4: well, I actually want to return to work, and I think that what Jeff talked about, about productivity, is, is really, really important. But, um, so I don't know that I can necessarily answer that question, but I can say, in answer to what you said before, is that, of course, it wasn't all that fluid. I mean, Robin had these values, and everything came back to those values, and I think that that was really important. And then the other thing that I want to say, in a rather old-fashioned way, is that, um, I mean, Ro- Robin, you know, Robin had this immense intellect... And he was deeply, deeply read. And actually, unfortunately, what I think we're missing is... And perhaps generously, Jeff would say, well, that's because there's no institution where this can happen. But I think that we're missing that sort of application, and that's really important, that kind of deep reading, that deep knowledge and that incredible intellectual rigour. And then what was different about Robin was that rather than taking that up to sort of the ivory towers, he took that rigour into practice. And that's, that's what we need. We need to kind of think about how we can bring together doing and thinking in new ways in this country because there is still this divide which Robin breached, which is that thinking is very important, the pamphlet, doing is a bit down there. And, you know, as, as Jeff has described, he brought together the macro and the micro, the thinking and the doing, and, and that is how change happens. And Robin really was ahead and radical and brilliant in the way that he did that.
1: So reinventing institutions, rediscovering praxis. Do you have a third imperative for us Ed?
5: I think thinking and doing, absolutely. Um, so on the, the point about, you know, reading John, George Monbiere's book or, or, or Bernie Sanders' organising techniques, would have that been a sort of hope? I think Robin actually was deeper than that, that he, he wouldn't look at an analysis of the world. He would look at the drivers of change. And, and that's certainly what he taught me in terms of, uh, in, you know, industrial economics and, um, and strategy is where are the drivers for change and where can those drivers actually connect with and be used for social, social and ecological sanity. And once you look at that, you're, you're no longer looking at a, at a flat picture. You're looking at things that, where things are already changing, um, you know, and, and I think Jeff, the in some ways, when you, your your remarks was talking a little bit about that that dynamic that he would have talked about. So not to disagree with what you said, but just to understand a little bit of, of the difference that he he brought. And sometimes it really was going down to the practice in the work that we did. We come up with our own big thick cooperative innovation book, which I'm, I'm you know is if you ever get cold in Cumbria, then then we can send you some. <laughs> um, and it was it was all about going down to the practice, going to visit. You know, teachers in cooperative schools uh, or renewable energy cops really to understand the detail because, you know, actually you'll hear lots of things that aren't useful. But I bet, you know, I guess like your time in Huddersfield, you'll get to a point where there's hold on, actually, here's something that you can really do something with. He had a business brain. You know, he had an idea about how enterprise uh, could work, cooperative enterprise more widely could work, and how to turn that to advantage. But thinking and doing yes. But the other side is relating and I think that's what Robin was also good at, this idea that he was part of something bigger, that he would associate himself with social movements, that many of the ideas that Robin would talk about you could point to Frederick Soddy in 1919 or Henry you know, uh, George in the 19th century and, you know John Ruskin, there was a a whole endowment and legacy of radical thinking that there's always been there Um, and in some ways it's all about you know the timing as when these things can come out and really be used Uh, and I suspect that you know but you're a brilliant policy analyst Matthew so the way that you'd have gone into that review was is it one of independence, not a kind of triangulation. I don't want to agree with them, don't agree with them, therefore I'll find something in the middle. You, you really wanted to have a look at it, worry it, until you found the solutions. And that's, that's an analytical frame. Um, and I think what Robin would have brought, and I guess would have been behind what you were thinking about, is, is that social movement side of it, you know, which is actually what goes on in terms of the world of work, the, the, the economy, is also about power. What we're seeing in the play out of, 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 of non-decent, non-good work is about power. Um, it's about precarious living. Uh, you know, I, m- I met somebody through my brother, who's a vicar in Shepherd's Bush, just recently who um, came out of uh, hospital and was homeless. He was self-employed, run, you know, running his own business, essentially. Um, and uh, he'd fallen over on the pavement, uh, ended up in hospital. And you know, when you're self-employed, as you know, you've got uncertain income, but certain outgoings. And if you can't pay your rent he was out of his flat. So you absolutely, now that is about, that is about risk, that is about power, that is a political issue and I guess the question is, is how you apply what we do in that context where it really connects through to wider agents and activists and campaign groups and hippies and brick throwers and entrepreneurs that are trying to achieve change in, in, in that way. I mean, I pity for you in a sense, I think we live in an era of crap policy. You know, we, you get people that, that, that are forced into doing, you know, kind of the wrong thing because there's no money, we can't do this, can't do that, can't do the other, rather than politics rooted in, rather than policy rooted in politics and relating.
1: Thank you. Uh, well, we could go on. Uh, speaking of deep thinking, creativity and innovation, I'm off to do more or more. Um, That's a joke, by the way. Uh, uh, I I take from that uh, comment a thought to leave us with, perhaps, which is that we should not get fixated on what is going on right now, but to think more deeply about the systems which govern the future and the way in which we influence uh, those systems. It's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you all for contributing. Please stay. Go immediately downstairs to the Benjamin Franklin room, have a drink, and carry on. Uh, the conversation, but just join me in uh, thanking Ed and Hilary and Jeff.
0: Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.